next in the series. We're going to be talking about the fall of Jericho. So it's a rather long passage again, so if you are... uh, If you'd like to remain seated in the reading of the scripture, I certainly understand. But uh, if you are able, if you will stand with me in the reading of God's word, we'll beginning at at Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, and we'll be covering chapter 6. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times, with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse, and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to get to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go in his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted at the sound of the trumpet. When the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. 
So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent out as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. Now, if uh, you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll look at verses 16 through 22. 1 Peter 3, 16 through 22, but please keep your finger in Joshua there. You probably forgot to do that. I should have said that before. All right. Peter writes, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we enter this time of focusing on your word, your word that sometimes confuses us, especially in these two passages, we pray, Lord, that uh, your Holy Spirit will be with us, and that because you are with us, your word will come alive to us, maybe as never before. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I, I read of a mother who went to wake her son for church one Sunday morning, and when she knocked on his door, he said, I'm not going. Why not? asked his mother. Well, I'll give you good two, two good reasons, he said. One is, they don't like me, and two, I don't like them. His mother said, well, I'll give you two good reasons why you will go to church. One, you're 47 years old. Two, you're the pastor. (laughs) Now let me be honest, I in part have the same hesitation today as that pastor did. Well, why? Because these passages today need to be handled very gently and with wisdom. Yet they are important parts of God's word and have an important message for us. Yet rarely will you ever hear a sermon preached on this, and maybe you'll never even hear any teaching on this. See, because we come today to the, in Joshua to the concept, the Hebrew concept of harem, 
the total devotion for destruction of a group of people to God. Total destruction. And the truth is, is that we struggle with this concept, and rightly so. Some have even rejected conservative, evangelical, orthodox Christianity because of passages like these in the Old Testament and our inability to understand and explain them to others. What do we do with this history? How do we reconcile the New Testament God of love and grace and redemption and forgiveness with this Old Testament Yahweh God who commanded the total destruction of some of these cities and nations, man, woman, and child? How do we reconcile the two? Do we just ignore these passages? Most do. Should we say, as some have attempted to do, that this is simply two separate ideas of God and the New Testament God is a whole lot better than the Old Testament one? Or maybe we should go the route of different forms of modern progressive theologies that believe that humanity has made progress in our understanding of God as time has gone on. And therefore, this is just people misunderstanding God and his intentions. You know, even a major evangelical church leader in our community today who leads one of the largest churches in the country has recently so separated God's revelation in the Old Testament from that of the New, essentially saying that the Old Testament laws aren't for today because they're incompatible with the New Testament God of grace. Is that what we should do? Maybe this is just all about people getting God's commands all wrong and displacing their own desires and their desires for war and revenge onto God. Well, to answer these questions, I I do want us to take a closer look at the issue as as it's presented here within the historical and biblical context. So uh, let me uh, begin, first of all, by taking a look at the historical record here in Joshua. We approach uh, these events, we first see the song, the Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. You all know the hymn, or the song, right? Remember the old spiritual, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came a-tumbling down? Well, you know, in that song, Joshua was somehow the victor and the hero. But here, in the book of Joshua, in the Bible, the victory was God's and God's army that came and fought for the Israelites. Do you see that here at the end of chapter 5? In fact, we're introduced to a character who is the captain of Yahweh's army. This person is described as something much more than just a human being. Well, maybe he's an angel. But even that seems insufficient when he calls upon Joshua to take his sandals off. Do you see that here? Because he's entering holy ground much like God did with Moses at the burning bush. What most Hebrew scholars believe is this is one of those places when Yahweh God appears in physical form to the leader of his people. What scholars often refer to as a theophany. The point is, is that it is God who will battle for his people. And in fact, just so they understand who is is it that wins the battle, he has the Israelites march around with the ark the symbolic presence of God in their midst. And they do it seven times. The seventh time they shout, then the walls come down. 
See, this is God's victory and his alone. And so for those of you who like to keep notes, this is point one on your outline. There is sometimes a strangeness to God's method. Isn't that true? We don't always understand why God works the way he does, but he does. Honestly, the way that God saves through Jesus is also quite strange, if you really think about it. You know, if I were planning the way of salvation, I wouldn't have thought of that way. In our way of thinking, God often acts strangely, not according to our plans and our purposes. You might even say that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. You might have discovered this to be true in your own life. You know, when God called me to ministry and took me down this long and winding path, it was completely unexpected. I had completely different plans back in those days. I had plans to become an engineer. I had plans of worldly success. Hadn't the Lord gifted me in math and science and sent me off to the Colorado School of Mines? I was the computer nerd back in those days. It's hard to believe. Back when computers were quite large mainframes. You all remember those days? I'm guessing uh, most of you younger ones don't. That wasn't God's plan for me. And even more immediately, it wasn't our plan to leave you all this soon either, but God had other plans. God's ways aren't our ways. When you look back on the history of Parkway and how God has brought you to this place, it was unexpected. God's ways aren't our ways. See, the Israelites, they understood this this was entirely God's victory. And God wanted them to know it with certainty. Now, uh, let's turn to 1 Peter for a little bit. The main thrust of this passage, this section of 1 Peter, is God's victory in Christ Jesus. So much so that Jesus, after his victorious death, went and proclaimed it to all the spiritual powers who were then, at the end, forced to submit to him. This is one of the most confused passages of the New Testament. One of the major popular opinions about this passage is that it's talking about Jesus after the crucifixion, but before the resurrection, who went and preached to the people in Hades who died during Noah's time. I don't believe that that's what Peter is referencing here. And neither do most New Testament scholars. They explain that this is likely a reference to the fallen angels that he preached to. That's my guess. But ultimately, I have to say, I don't know the precise answer. There is a certain uncertainty here. But in all the debates over the questions of this passage, what is often missed is the main point of the passage which is indisputable and very simple. And it's point two on your outline. Christ's proclamation of total victory over all spiritual powers. And no matter what we think about the specifics, that is not in doubt. And it is the main point that we're supposed to get out of all this. He is entirely victorious. And all spiritual powers know it. There's no mystery about his victory. The emphasis here in 1 Peter is on the proclamation, the revelation of this victory. And in that light, we are called as 
his servants who respond to his victory. We are in him as believers, and therefore his victory is our victory. In Christ, we have victory, as symbolized by the cleansing we have received, which is symbolized in our baptism. Do you see that here? Which in itself symbolizes and points to the resurrection of Jesus, which is what saves us. Not that baptism saves, but Christ's death and resurrection save as symbolized in baptism. His death and resurrection in our place is what saves. We have that victory in Christ. His victory over sin, Satan, death, and the world is our victory too through his resurrection, which we receive by grace through faith. Just as he saved and gave victory to Noah and his family, so too he gives us the victory and salvation. Several years ago, Pastor Rick Stacy baptized a man named Myron in Lake Superior. It was late October, about 9 p.m. Rick had been talking with Myron and his wife about accepting the Lord as their personal Savior and sealing that decision with baptism into Jesus. Myron was very hesitant for a long time and then finally said, yes, I want to accept Jesus and I want to be baptized tonight, right now, in Lake Superior. Now, in case you don't know, Lake Superior is quite cold. The average temperature year-round is about 38 degrees. And this was late October. And the waves were running three feet high. They were going to walk out waist-deep into the water, but they only made it about knee-deep. Rick laid down Myron, and the waves washed over him as he was baptized in the name of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father. When they went back to Myron's home for some hot cocoa and a hot soak for their cold feet, Rick asked him why it was so important that he do this that night in Lake Superior. He writes his answer this way, I was in the, in the army, an officer in the infantry during Vietnam. I saw and did things that no man should see or do. I wanted my sins buried in the deepest and coldest place. See, I think this illustrates the message that Peter is highlighting here. We are united with Christ through faith, and his victory is our victory. In Christ's victory, our victory, our sins are buried in the deepest and coldest place, as symbolized by baptism. Now let's go back to Joshua. Let me see if I can't at least answer some of these difficult questions about cherem, the total devotion and destruction of a people to God. First, let me say that these commands of God weren't to exterminate all non-Israelites, but only specific groups of Canaanites. This policy also was not permanent and wasn't to be a regular and normal practice. Let me give some more historical background from God's perspective. You see, centuries back in Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 through 16, when God was cutting a life and death covenant with Abraham, talked about this a little bit last week, 
Back then we read this in Genesis 15, verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sins of the Amorites, from which the Canaanites descended, by the way, has not yet reached its full measure. See, God was being patient with that generation and then would be for hundreds more years. But judgment will come. See, what this is not is a vindictive, impatient, petulant national god with a small g. In Leviticus chapter 18, God gives commands against all forms of immorality and sexual perversions and informs us that the Canaanite people are guilty of all those sins. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we're told about the level of their zeal for magic and divination and their love of demonic powers. In 1929, Ugaritic documents were discovered at Rosh Shamra in Syria that confirms what the Bible tells us about the Canaanites' vile religious practices, such as religious prostitution, and child sacrifice as a general everyday practice. Now this isn't to say that the Israelites were without sin, but the level of the depravity of the Canaanites so, was so great that it had come time for judgment. There are uh, two other things that we know. That God commands this so that the evil religious views and practices and moral depravity wouldn't affect the Israelites and the revelation of truth that God is revealing through them, through his word, entrusted to his people. See, the Israelites were to be set apart so that they would be a blessing to all the nations, so that they might show and communicate who the true God is. And ultimately, we do know that the Canaanites that did remain on the land continued to be a major struggle and challenge to the Israelites' views of God and to their views of morality and ultimately caused them to be led away from God many times. I also don't want you to miss something else that's very important. We're told here at the right at the beginning of chapter 6 that the gates of the wall were shut when they came. See, this isn't just a physical description but it also tells us of where they are spiritually. Since it's literally and historically set by, side by side with Rahab and her response. See, in other words, what uh, Joshua is telling us here that, is that they had shut out God's people and God himself, despite the fact that they had gotten to know a lot, about, a lot of the truth about this Yahweh God who acts on behalf of his people as we've seen already in this book. See, their God was God, as Rahab had put it. Yet they chose to reject God's people, to keep them out, and thereby also reject God. 
their gates were shut to God and to his people. See, Jesus' words echo this precise truth. In Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus speaks about the end-time judgment and the separating of the sheep from the goats, he tells his disciples that those who receive them, these least of his brethren, receive him. Some will receive salvation and place and a place with him in heaven and others to eternal hell. And it's based upon their reception to the gospel as brought by his disciples, the least of these, my brethren, God's people who come in his name. So let me be pretty clear here. And this is point three on your outline. If you believe in the God of the New Testament as revealed most clearly in Jesus, a God of love, forgiveness, grace, and mercy, then you also must accept a holy God who judges with truth, but also with patience and with compassion. See, if you believe in a God who saves in Jesus Christ, then you must believe in what God is saving us from. From hell, sin, death, the devil, and the world with all its worldly values. Those are all a reality. If we reject hell, an eternal place of horrid punishment, then we have to reject Jesus. He's the one who speaks the most about hell in all of the Bible. There's one more thing here. In the midst of the description of Jericho's destruction, we see God's grace and his mercy and his salvation in the person of Rahab and her entire household. See, she hasn't shut her gate to God's people, but she's received them. She hasn't closed her heart to God, but she's received him in reverent fear and love and is now included among God's people, so much so that she is to be included in the lineage of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews 11, in that great chapter, sometimes referred to as the Hall of Faith, we read that the, by faith, Rahab received God and his people, and she acted on that faith too. Her faith worked in helping the spies, as James tells us in his New Testament letter. By faith, she sought out the mercy of God and his people, and now she's received mercy. See, Jesus has told us that the harvest is ripe, but the harvesters are few. In other words, you and I are called to be the harvesters, to go out to the fields, to build loving relationships with people who don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, to invite them into our homes and into our lives, because Christ's love for us and for them compels us. Love is the motivating factor. In other words, and this is point four on your outline, there are Rahabs in your neighborhood, in your office, in your grocery store, who need you in their lives. Who need you to love them to real life in Jesus. Rahab's that the Lord is calling you to plant seeds in their life or to find that seeds are already planted and have been grown by the Holy Spirit into ripeness. And now a harvester is needed. A harvester who will love them, care for them, show them the love and grace of Jesus. 
have the courage to speak the bad news, that they are dead in their sins, and the good news of the mercy and grace of God found in Jesus Christ alone and his victory available to them today. Minka Hanskamp and Margaret Morgan were missionary nurses with Overseas Missionary Fellowship, or OMF. They had worked tirelessly in southern Thailand for 16 and 9 years, respectively. They both had a special burden for those with leprosy. Their ministry involved cutting away rotten flesh and treating ulcerated sores that emitted a horrible stench and washing many leprous feet. Every two weeks, the women held a leprosy clinic in the town of Pujud, and on April 20, 1974, Minka's 16th anniversary at OMF, she and Margaret were lured away from Pujud by strangers who insisted that they come with them to the mountains to treat some sick patients needing help there. On April 30, 1974, Ian Murray, the OMF representative for Thailand, received two letters. One was a letter from Minka and Margaret stating that they had been kidnapped by jungle people, but, were all, but they were well and still praising Jesus. The second letter was from their captors. It demanded a half-million-dollar ransom. The kidnappers also demanded that an official letter be sent from OMF to the nation of Israel in support of the Palestinian rights. OMF's policies didn't allow them to comply with their demand because if they paid a ransom, every missionary would become more susceptible to being abducted. It was also against OMF policy to be involved in political issues. Instead, Ian Murray met with Thai officials and representatives of the kidnappers attempting to secure the release of Minka and Margaret. The meeting was unsuccessful. Violence in the area escalated over the next few days between Muslim separatists and the military. The Muslim gang that held the women issued a statement saying that they weren't against OMF, but against American and British support of Israel. And the women would not be released unless the Christian world stopped any support to Israel against the Palestinian people. The crisis did receive international attention and a great deal of prayer. But the letters from the women soon stopped, and rumors of their execution spread, but weren't confirmed. Finally, in March 1975, a Malaysian man confessed that he had shot both missionaries in the head. The chief of the Muslim gang had decided that the women had to be killed in order to keep the respect of his underlings in that rebel movement. The man said, that the nurses were calm when they were told they were going to die, saying only, give us a little time to read and pray. Although the Christian world hoped the story wasn't true, it was eventually confirmed. On May 15, hundreds attended their funeral, not only Christians, but Buddhists and Muslims as well. Many were shocked and saddened by the violent murders of the women who had come to help them. One man testified at the funeral that he had been a former Muslim bandit killer, but had become a Christian 
after Minka had tenderly placed his ulcerated foot in her lap as she treated it. Following the funeral, Native pastors and missionaries received more inquiries about the Christian faith than ever before, and many soon after called upon Jesus as Savior through the witness of these two women. See, Rahab was enfolded into God's people. So too were each one of us. We had at once not, once not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. But now Rahab too has received the victory of God. So too we have received Christ's victory. In Christ we have the victory. The question for each of us this morning is will we live that victory out? Christ's victory. How will you live it out today? Where is Christ calling upon you to pour out your life in response to the victory he has given us as he poured out his life for us? Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, you truly have given us the victory in the crucifixion and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. It is why we can come to the table this morning to come and remember the victory that you have won in our place, the victory that we can receive only by grace through faith in your crucifixion and resurrection. The victory that we receive in your amazing love if we come and trust you with our life. Lord Jesus, you are so amazingly gracious. I invite you now to turn with